0: this is the GP Soccer Podcast with your host Giovanni Pacini. Hey there, everyone. Giovanni Pacini here, your host of the GP Soccer Podcast. Welcome to another episode. Uh, as I always like to say, uh, welcome to uh, all of my listeners, North, South, East, West, everyone in the middle, and my international audience as well. So here's where I'm going to start today. Does any of this sound familiar or feel familiar to you? Um, you've decided, or were forced to decide, <laughs> that you're going to coach a youth soccer team. Let's just say it's your town team. Uh, maybe it's because you wanted to coach your kids. Maybe it was because they're short of coaches, but you felt compelled for whatever reason to step up to the plate and coach soccer. So there you go. You, you, you've you got your team. We'll, we'll call them the bumblebees, right? So you have your little bumblebee team and it could be in any age group. Any age group, but typically, you know, a lot of folks, uh, you know, deal with the, with the grassroots uh, level. But nonetheless, so you're getting ready for your, you know, your your first season, and you go to coaches' meetings, and they hand you, you know, information and you know forms, and maybe I I don't know, maybe even a curriculum if you're lucky, give you something to go on. Uh, but more often than not, you 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 find yourself flying by the seat of your pants a little bit. You just you just know that you you, you felt compelled to to coach the bumblebees. Um, and so there you are. You're 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 going to go to your first practice. And you, you get up, um, you know, in the morning and you go to work. And you go to work and you go through that work day and all the associated grind and pressures and responsibilities that go along with going to work and being at work. And, uh, you know, you get out of work at 5 and it, at, uh, you know, 5.45 or maybe 6 o'clock, it's practice. It's training for you and the bumblebees. So you race out of work at 5 o'clock and All of a sudden, you're sitting in bumper-to-bumper traffic, and you come to the realization that, oh my goodness, I I, I haven't put together a practice session. What am I going to do with these kids when I get to the field? And then you start to you start to get anxious. And as you're driving along, you're 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 going through your brain. Well, well maybe I'll 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 work on this. Um, maybe some dribbling. And what kind of dribbling should I work on? And should I should be dribbling to beat a defender? Is it speed dribbling? Uh, passing, receiving. And as Long as you go through this mental exercise, ladies and gentlemen, which is torturous, you're looking down at the clock and it's getting closer to closer to 5:45, which is when practice is supposed to start, and you haven't even sorted out a practice session yet, and yet you're getting closer and closer. You get to the field and you decide at the last minute, well, I'll just kind of go with what I know, which is always dangerous sometimes because going with what you know may not be in the best interest of the kids. And it's what you kind of feel secure and safe doing. So you, you race out, you, maybe you put on your bumblebee coaching jacket. I don't know. You pull the balls, you pull the pennies, uh, you pull the cones, of which there are probably too many out of your trunk and you kind of spread them out and you, maybe you set up little, little, uh, little grids. And all of a sudden the kids are arriving, you know, one by one. And you come to the realization really soon, folks, that they don't, they don't all arrive at the same time, um, uh, because um, other people work. <laughs> the parents work. And maybe uh, Mr. and Mrs. Jones can can drop their kid off a little bit early. But, you know, Mr. and Mrs. Smith can only drop their kid off a little bit later. And they come in bunches. And they arrive. And all of a sudden, Johnny's climbing a tree. And, and Billy's wrestling with Sammy. And, uh, you know, things like that are taking place. And you haven't quite sorted it all out. You get through it some way, somehow you kind of get through it. Um, and then you come to the realization that I, I can't do that again. I, I I can't do that again because that just wasn't fun. And uh, no, it's not fun. In fact, it's a little bit, bit torturous for me to even explain or share that that chronology, which I'm sure resonates with many of you out there in my listening audience. Well, today's show is going to try to help you sort that out. Now, it's not going to solve all of your problems. It's not going to be the magic wand that says, okay, if you listen to this show, this episode uh, with my interview guests on the other side, all of your coaching worries will be over. No, but it it will certainly, certainly help. Now, as I always say, and I will say it again, and I will beat this proverbial dead horse uh, until there's nothing left to beat, and that is, coaches, you always have to remember the following. The players, even the bumblebees, are students. The field is a classroom and the coach is a teacher. And all of the things that go into a very dynamic, healthy, positive, educational, academic environment that includes the teacher, the students, and the classroom are the very same things that should manifest themselves in the soccer field. And last but certainly not least... And again, I'll beat this dead horse. I make no apologies for, uh, you know, saying this as often as I do. It isn't, It isn't. you know, mandatory in my book that you take a coaching education course. And not just one, you keep taking them for as long as you're teaching the game of soccer. Because as I always say and repeat after me, if you have assumed the responsibility of the care and concern of children to teach the game of soccer, you have also assumed the responsibility to become certified and qualified for as long as you're teaching the game of soccer. So, if you're teaching, you're coaching the Bumblebees for one season, you're going to take, well, maybe not one, but you might take a couple. Because remember, it is a myth, a myth that says certified once, qualified forever. That is not the case. That is not the case. Our guest today, now that I've kind of set you up, is Rob Ellis. And you know Rob Ellis. Rob is a a uh, regular contributor to the GP Soccer Podcast. So you all enjoy his English Premier League and European Soccer Report in the last block of the GP Soccer Podcast. You enjoyed his presence uh, when I had my World Cup panel where we, uh for five or six weeks, got together uh, and, and chatted all things World Cup. And you certainly know him by his terrific book, The Soccer Coach's Toolkit. Rob and I are going to be talking about different methods by which you can teach the game of soccer. Again, not going to be a cure-all, not going to be the end-all in terms of, you know, helping you all, but it's going to make a dent. Uh, and I think there's enough sub- substantive information in that conversation that you can feel more comfortable setting up uh, training sessions that are fun, that are enjoyable, and believe it or not, a little less anxiety for you as the coach. You're going to enjoy that. Let me shift gears here with uh, a topic um, that uh, I'm, I'm, God, I'm proud that we'll, I'll be featuring this, this upcoming special series um, that is entitled Violence in Youth Sports. And you know, I, I'm, I'm proud to do that because I, I, I think um, I have an opportunity here to shed some light on a very, very dark topic that unfortunately is far too pervasive here in the youth sports landscape across the United States. And maybe Maybe even globally, this idea was spurred on. It was around last year. Uh, I, and I was aware of of these issues. I think we all are. If you're involved in youth sports, you know that these that these these issues arise and they have arisen and shall and continue to arise, sadly, across the youth sports landscape. But it was an HBO uh, program called Real Sports, which I highly recommend. It's terrific. There was a segment about uh, soccer officials. Uh, getting physically accosted by players and by parents, um, you know, from youth soccer to to even higher levels. It really, for whatever reason, ladies and gentlemen, it really got me. It really, really got me. And so I started to do some more research. I wanted to hear more stories. And the more more research I did, the deeper dive I did into um, these stories, I had literally, this is no lie, I literally had a pile of of articles, of, of instances where youth, soc- uh, youth sp- violence in youth sports uh, had reared its its ugly head. So I decided to do something about it. In my, my own little way here with, with my GP Soccer Podcast, um, and it's entitled Violence in Youth Sports. And the first episode here in the GP Soccer Podcast will air on May the 24th, and I will have a very esteemed panel. Uh, that will be participating in this conversation and the focus on the May 24th episode of violence in youth sports will be about the contributing factors. What are some of the things that have you know contributed to this to this now very serious issue that we call violence in youth sports. The second episode will be the following week May 31st and will be solutions because if you're going to talk about the contributing factors Heck, we, we would be doing this conversation a disservice and the issue a disservice if we didn't talk about the solutions to this issue. Once again, I've put together a terrific panel, which I'm very proud to be able to moderate and, and let their expertise and uh, uh, opinions shine through so that uh, you, my listening audience, can, can enjoy, appreciate, learn uh, from these great experts. And hopefully, collectively, we all. Uh, can put an end to, um, you know, this rather dark uh, element that has reared its head here in the youth sports landscape. You know, I'll end with this, and, and I guess you might be able to, you, you can call me naive, uh, maybe a bit idealistic, but I have always envisioned, and certainly I, I was able to enjoy this when I was growing up in youth sports, you know, going to, you know, uh, whether you're a soccer a hockey, a football, basketball, baseball, whatever, youth sports, should be this oasis, this place that is, my goodness, almost wholesome, if you will, where kids can go and parents can go and cheer on their kids and, you know, put on bumblebee shirts, if you will, and coaches get to go out and and teach the game they love and have fun with it. And at the end of it all, you go back home and you, you talk about the, you know, the great game or how fun training was. Call me naive. Call me idealistic. But I, I, I'd like to think back, there was a day I, we can harken back to when youth sports was this pure oasis, um, you know, by which you know, people could go into and enjoy. It's no longer an oasis of joy. It's no longer an oasis of, if anything else, safety for that matter. Uh, and it's become something else. And I'd like to think, in my own small way, through this broadcast, in my broad, and in my broadcast on Direct Kick, which, as you know, is on WMEX um, in Boston, because uh, we'll talk about there as well, that we can bring some changes uh, to the youth sports landscape. Where heck, uh, at the risk of sounding naive again, or uh, you know, it's it's something, something pure. So May 24th, contributing factors uh, to violence in youth sports, and May 31st, solutions. And you know, listen, you, my listening audience, can chime in, please, uh, if you've got a question or a story that you'd like to share with me, that I could bring it up with, with my with my panel. Oh my goodness, I would love to hear from you. GP4 Soccer, and that's the number four at yahoo.com. GP4 Soccer at yahoo.com. Please feel free to email me, um, you know, questions or, or or stories, if you will, both good and well, not so good uh, about this issue of violence in youth sports. And again, if worthy, I will uh, you know, bring it up to my wonderful panel. So there you have it, ladies and gentlemen, our, our opening here for the GP Soccer Podcast. As I noted to you on the other side, Rob Ellis, my good friend, will talk about all things teaching the game of soccer. Giovanni Pacini here, GP Soccer Podcast. Great to be with you as always. Love you guys. We're going to break for a commercial message on the other side. My conversation with Rob Ellis. Don't you dare go anywhere. Cancer we all know someone whose life has been impacted by this deadly disease a friend a colleague a family member someone in your community no one is immune from it but as each day passes the fight continues to find a cure that one day will eradicate cancer from all our lives one of the ways you can join the fight is through red card cancer its mission is a call to action to help defeat the world's biggest opponent by uniting the global game of soccer in the fight against cancer together With the American Cancer Society, the soccer community is raising money and awareness for cancer research. If you or your soccer organization would like to support the American Cancer Society and Red Card Cancer, head over to redcardcanceracs.org as well as redcardcancer.org. Red Card Cancer, where a cure is
1: our goal. Hey, everyone, this is Sterling Neighbors with Tennessee Soccer Club,
2: and you're listening to the GP Soccer Podcast with host Giovanni Pacini. And welcome back to the GP Soccer
0: Podcast. Your host here, Giovanni Pacini. Always nice to be back with you behind the microphone talking all things soccer. As I teased you in the opening block, my really good friend, and I mean this in all sincerity, my good friend Rob Ellis is a... Going to be our featured guest uh, today on the GP Soccer Podcast. And uh, he and I a while back talked about uh, doing a series of shows or, or a handful of shows, you know, about coaching soccer or teaching soccer or the philosophy in, of soccer. And we, we kind of check some boxes here. And so today is one of those days where he and I are going to chat about, you know, how to teach the game of soccer or the word that is more commonly used, you know, methods by which we coach soccer. So, you know, Rob, really well. He's a regular contributor to to me here in the GP Soccer Podcast with his EPL and European Report. He's the author of The Soccer Coaches Toolkit, um, which is a terrific book, certainly worth picking up. And so, Rob, my good friend, welcome back to the GP Soccer
1: Podcast. Thanks for having me on again, Giovanni. Always a pleasure. Looking forward forward to it.
0: Listen, we're two guys at the pub having a beer. We're talking football. We're talking football. So So here's where I want to start. Before we kind of get into the main topic, you know, methods, that type of thing, uh, I would be remiss, uh, even though I get your reports, uh, which are terrific every week for the GP Soccer Podcast and on Direct Kick as well, I want to talk about the title race a little bit. Uh, Things have changed. Man City Mm. uh, has Mm. found its way back uh, to the top. Um, Thrashing Arsenal, I'll use that word, thrashing, four to one. And then uh, as we record today, they had another another result against Fulham. What is your take on this? Um, these two teams? And now Man City, you know, finding its way back to the top of the table.
1: Um, well, there's different takes on it. First of all, emotionally, I'm, as an Arsenal fan, I'm in a lot of pain. <laughs> um, to the point where I've almost shut down because I just can't see. You know, sometimes it's more painful to keep the hope alive. Um, Secondly, I'm blaming the good old United States of America for the demise. Let me explain, Giovanni. When I left England for my holiday to Atlanta, Georgia, um, about three weeks ago, Arsenal were absolutely flying. Whilst I was out in America, we threw away a 2-0 lead at Anfield to draw 2-2. We then threw away a 2-2 lead against West Ham. And on the day I touched down, so I'm still blaming, uh, I'm still blaming the states this Giovanni. We somehow drew 3 3 with Southampton. So I think my holiday was cursed. And since we've been back, we then lost to Man City. So that's one take on it as well. Um, slightly tongue in cheek one, but I do think, um, I hate to say it. I think the race is run. Um, I, I mean, I watch a lot of EPL. But obviously, you know, my heart's with Arsenal, so I, I know the team ever so well. And, and my theory is about sport and teams, that teams are like people, they have personalities. And that personality is very hard to change. And I think once Arsenal went into um panic mode, I think Arsenal find it very hard to realise how good they are. And I, when they played Southampton the other night, and they were 2-0 down after 10 minutes. I honestly think they could have been playing any of the 92 professional English soccer team and caused a catastrophe for themselves. I If there's any Southampton fans I've offended, but I don't think that, that 3-3 was a lot to do with how well Southampton played. I think Arsenal almost had to create a catastrophe and, and live it out. And, and like some people do, they keep making the same mistakes. And I just think now they're in such a dark place that Man City have overtaken them, I think they're going to find the remainder of the season very difficult. And I can see a couple of more games where they're going to slip up. I can't see City dropping points, but I can see Arsenal. And very quickly, I think you're going to look back on it and think, was that a title race at all? Which which really hurts. And the the icing on the cake was when Arsenal went to the Etihad Stadium on Wednesday night, I think they were in such a bad place mentally. The 4-1, just rub salt in the wound because I don't think that game accurately tells the tale of the season, but it's like life again; it's timing of situations. That that game couldn't have come at a worse time for Arsenal. And so I just think, yeah, I think City have done it. That, that's what I hate to say. It, I think they've done
2: it.
0: You know, and, and City, as you know, has, has a game in hand. So they've got a yeah. little bit of – they've got a bit of a cushion – you know, to, to adjust, if you will, if they need to, to, to garner points, not that I think they're going to need them gone, Cause I agree with you. I think it's done, but in the yeah. event that it's not, and there's a hiccup, they have a game in hand to kind of make, make up for things. I'd like to get your take since you're there and you're an Arsenal fan. I look at Arteta, you know, on the yeah. sideline and, and, you know, the coach developer comes out to me, the coach educator comes out in me, the, the analyst comes out in me. Uh, and, and this is just impression. This is just impressions of what I see on television but he always appears to be a bit of a nervous Nelly. Um it always mm-hmm. feels like it's, it's he's his his uh this personality, his look, his tension is is such that it's almost like something he's waiting for something to happen. Um and then when things start to go downhill, again, much like the match against Man, Man City, where you lose four-one, that that persona, that look mm. that he that he gives off is just one of of nerves or and maybe a bit defeatist. What's your take on him?
2: Mm. Um and and that observation from this guy across the pond. Yeah. <clears throat> um I think I think in in many ways Arteta is the best man for
1: for the Arsenal job because he was a player under Wenger when Arsenal were in decline. So I think he understood the roots of Arsenal's decline extremely well and he's clearly an, an intelligent guy so I think he understood all aspects of the decline. Then he went to Man City, where Guardiola was probably playing in a way that's similar to Wenger, but was just doing it much better at that stage. And I think he adopted the ruthless winning mentality as well. So I think when Arsenal were looking for a manager after Unai Emre, when they saw Arteta, they saw a man who loved the club, who understood the club, but had been in an environment where they, Man City were winning ruthlessly. So when he came back, I think the job Arteta has done has been jaw dropping because I think Arsenal were close a few years back late late Wenger I had a feeling that with the the huge money in the game and the 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 Emirates project that Arsenal undertook and they'd lost their status in the financial market they were losing status generally if that had gone on a couple more years there's no reason why they couldn't fallen into the kind of the Everton situation. Now, that might sound a little bit over the top, but that was, that was my fear. And so when Arteta started to get his teeth into the job, I was so reassured because I saw someone on the training ground. I think he knows what he's doing. I think he's young, motivated, intelligent. I think he learns from mistakes. But I do agree with you in a sense, Giovanni, which is, and this may just be the final piece of the jigsaw that's missing, when Arsenal are in trauma mode, I think he does everything right to get them out of him. I can imagine his training is inspirational. I can imagine he's got novel ideas. I've got to imagine he can be like a father figure to the to the younger players. But, you know, sometimes you look at a manager and their team is starting to wobble. And, you know, you just look at the manager in the dugout. Mourinho had it. Ancelotti has it. You just think they might be wobbling, but they're not going to lose. Arteta sometimes gets that frown and you sometimes think, hang on, does he really, really, really know what to do? And this you know, the end of the day's his first job. Was he 40? He's managing one of the biggest clubs in the world yeah. who were toxic late Wenger. It was I used to go to Arsenal, it was horrible going to home games. He's given everyone massive hope. And you know, but I agree with you, I think this will hurt him. Because also last year, they, they should have finished fourth and they blew it. And then this year, they overachieved the game. They should have won the league. I think they've blown it. Now, you could say this is huge progress. It's massive. No one would have said Arsenal would push City to the end. But again, it's life events. The way it's happened is possibly more damaging than, than what's happened, I think, mm. to Arteta. Um, I hope that's not the case, but I think he'll need to be strong over the summer to push on next year.
0: Yeah, you know, at the risk of sounding a bit cliche, Rob, you know these types of things are, are what uh, you know helps you to improve as a manager, and and you have to yeah, face exactly. these these major situations like you know falling now to, to second place in in the league. You, mm. you, you you have to grow from that, and Absolutely. and in that growth, then you know you become better. You become better. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned Everton there and your 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 uh, answer there. Let's go to the bottom of the table, which. This is what I love. This is why I love promotion and relegation, which we don't have mm-hmm. in the United States, because the bottom of the table can be as fascinating, sometimes more fascinating, than the top of the table. Now, in this case, mm-hmm. we have both. We have a terrific top mm-hmm. of the table battle here with Man City and with Arsenal. But I'm looking at uh, you know the last uh, from 16 to 20. We have Leeds United at third, sitting on 30 points, down to Southampton for 24 points. There's uh, several spots there. One, two, three, four, five, at six points difference uh southampton i think is inevitable yeah i think so what about everton what Mm -hmm. about everton of 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 all the teams that you know you 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 hate to see you're you know relegated. you hate to see any team relegated Mm. something about everton and and i'll give you a little side story i had a chance to spend some time at everton a number of years ago in fact i'm looking at a picture of me and and tim howard when he was the goalkeeper there i had a great great opportunity there so my i have a little bit of my heart as a blue uh at Mm. everton and i follow them and so to see them on the verge of potentially being relegated, you know, uh, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on not just Everton, but those, those bottom spots and who you think, aside from Southampton, because I think they're destined. Who, What, what do you think happens there?
1: Um, I, I again, I, I, I have that similar feeling, Jim. Right? When I was a kid, I mean, not that, not that there was ever any, um, contest about where my heart lay, but I always had a fondness for Everton. Uh, I've got a cousin who lives in New York uh, who's an Everton fan. And I've got a friend here I speak to who's an Everton fan. And I don't know what it is. There's there's part of me. There's a feeling. I do have a feeling for Everton. And I hate to see. I can't believe what's happening with Everton sometimes. When you look at the team the mid-late 80s that was pushing Liverpool, going for league titles, European trophies, and it has just been a gradual decline for about 30 years there's been the odd peak. David Moyes came in and did well for a while but when you look at Everton now the board the fans can't stand the board the owners don't seem to know what's going on the manager never seems to fit the you know the fans are incredibly patient but I think you know it's funny Giovanni because I did my I recorded my podcast piece for you earlier my Euro soccer roundup and I was talking about the bottom of the table and I made some predictions That was before this afternoon's games. And earlier on today, I predicted Southampton would go, which I think they will. But I was sticking to my season-long forecast, which is I thought Forest would go. And I still said Bournemouth. Now, people were saying Bournemouth. I say Bournemouth won again today, and I've completely changed my tune. I've gone into panic mode. (laughs) So I am now saying I think Everton are going to go because I think their next game is Man City. Then they've got four games left right and they 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 can't score they cannot score how how do you have hope as an everton fan when you can't score and you know so that drives. and i also think i think they got beaten quite badly today i think leeds are going to go as well i've completely changed my tune i'm going for leeds as well
0: yeah leeds has been on a a a very um you know a downward spiral you know when when jesse marsh was let go he, he was brought in to be the savior as we all know with leeds united and uh you know, he's not giving much of a leash, if you will, uh, t- to do his thing. And he was let go. And, uh, mm. they seem to be destined to, you know, to, for relegation as well. They need to sort, sort things out as well. Huh? well, as they always say, you know, you have to play the games. Um, we'll see how it yeah. all, how, how it all transpires. So yeah, let's see. Yeah. So, um, again, before we get, we get into our conversation about teaching and methods, um, as you're aware, and you and I have, have talked about U.S. soccer has named, uh, yeah. Mr. Matt Crocker as the sporting director. Mm for for u s soccer mm. one of the three big uh roles or jobs with u s soccer that one being the general manager one being the sporting director, and then the the final piece of the puzzle the u s men's national team coach one of those is now filled uh gentleman's name is matt crocker. he spent some time uh at Southampton. hope that doesn't you know sour people because of Southampton yeah. state, but he also did some some terrific work uh while working for the f a Share with my audience from, from your, your side of the pond, your perspective, um, you know, what, what we know, what we can expect from Matt Crocker here in the United States.
1: Yeah, I think, I think unless you are really involved in the ins and outs and the you know, bureaucratic side of the football association, you know, you ask the average guy in the street, the average football fan, um, do you know Matt Crocker? The average fan, I'm being ignorant, would say no. Uh, in coaching circles, uh, the answer would be very, very different. And, you know, so he's he's had um a pretty impressive career. I think well, he's Welsh and he started off at Cardiff City um as a youth coach and then went on to run Southampton's academy. Did very well. They produced some really good players, such as Bale, Walcott, uh, Luke Shaw, Ward-Prowse in that era. And then England picked him up where he had a huge say in development of a playing culture um the development of of all national of all national teams i think from under 15s up to sort of first team level he was involved in the bru- the blueprint how do we want to play the game how are we going to work with teams how are we going to develop youth players that fit into the england model because whether it is the case or not because of the, the champions league it is still billed as the pinnacle of football and so he played a really important role in you know, in making sure that uh, the players we were producing would fit into to our national model. And, you know, in his spell at the FA, I think the the under-17s, England under-17s, won the World Cup. So did the under-20s. They won the World Cup. And the under-19s won European Championships. So, you know, he obviously had a big in, impact uh, in that. And then he went back to Southampton as sort of, you know, head of head of operations, I think. I think was the title. Um, I think he's also been involved in something called, he developed something called the Southampton playbook. Now, in, in the States, you know, he's very much playbook orientated. You know, I guess the, the, all the players on the, on the US football team, uh, and I say football, I don't mean soccer, US football, they memorize the playbook at the start of the year. Now, that's very different to how it would be in England, but he was very big, I think, on player specific characteristics. So all the Southampton younger players understood. What do you need when you're playing at right back? How does a centre midfielder perform on the pitch? So I think he's got a real grasp on youth development. He's got, I think he's got a degree in sport pedagogy. Um, So I think he's very, very going to be focused on from bottom up. And I think that was, I think that was possibly one of the main reasons, if they're looking long term, why US um, replaced Ernie Stewart with, with, with Matt Crocker.
2: Yeah,
0: it remains to be seen. Um, you know, there's always the ongoing discussion, arguments um on, on you know, here in the United States when we, I say we, US soccer, brings in someone from another country. Uh, mm-hmm. you get into that, you can't, heck, can't we find someone here in this country to do the job? We certainly have, you know, ample examples of folks who probably could. Why do we always have to look abroad? You know, yeah. uh, because typically what happens, I'm not saying this is the case with, with, with Matt Crocker, but in the past, you know, folks have come here from from different countries. And the first thing that they're blown away by is the, the sheer size of our country. As you know, yeah. we're, we're just massive, you know, ge- geographically. Yeah. And our soccer landscape is massive yeah. as well. Yeah. And in some, some cases, they just get literally overwhelmed. Another yeah. thing that sometimes rears its head and has reared its head already because his first press conference, this question was posed to him. We have a significant Latin population in this country. We have we have some fantastic Latino players coast to coast, north, south, um, you know, that that are that are playing at virtually every level. And he was asked about that. And quite frankly, he came across as, you know, well, I really don't know. I'm going to have to learn about that. And I think the follow up question was, well, do you speak Spanish?
2: <laughs> the
0: gentleman does not speak Spanish. Uh, so you go, hmm, you know, mm-hmm. you, is, mm-hmm. is that is that really a big deal? Would it have helped? Yeah, I think it might have helped uh, if you're yeah, looking to so. in this country really do a deeper dive in, in, into the Latin American soccer community, of which there are some great players who play there. You know, mm. in the you know uh, the ethnic leagues and in, in the inner cities, um, would it be nice to have someone who can go in and speak their language and identify and connect and bring them assimilate them? You know, into uh, you know the U.S. soccer. We'll mm. see. Much yeah, like games, see. much like games that have to be played to sort out standings. We'll see how things start out with Mr. Crocker here in the United States. Yeah. So here we go. Uh, teaching the game methods here. Here's how I'll start. I'm I'm, I'm going to go back a million years. My friend, Rob Ellis. to when I was playing, uh, well, let's just say high school soccer in the early days of uh, youth soccer. And this was the method. And there's big air quotes. My, my radio audience can't see it, but big, big air quotes. You'd arrive at practice. You put on your boots and then coaches say, okay, boys. Give me two laps, give me three laps. And you pair off, right? And you go two or three laps, (laughs) whatever it is, military style order. And then when you get back after your obligatory two laps or three laps, all right, boys, circle up. Yeah. Circle up and you do a series of static stretches, which we know you do before training. And then you did what I refer to as maybe drill number one, which is typically Mm -hmm. something had a lot of lines to it. And maybe there was drill number two. Yep. Maybe they connected, maybe they didn't. And then you would scrimmage, which everybody looked forward to. We got to <laughs> scrimmage. And I don't recall in my early days of playing the game, even high school, and I had a tremendous high school coach. I don't think we ever played small sided games. When we scrimmage, mm. we scrimmaged eleven versus eleven.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And
0: you played for a certain period of time and the referee and then the coach would blow his whistle. All right, boys, bring it in.
1: Maybe some words of wisdom. See you tomorrow. And that was See it. You later. Yeah. That was it. Sounds pretty, sounds pretty similar to, uh, to some of my playing experience, playing experiences. It was, it was that, it was that basic, wasn't it? You it was indeed it. that basic. Yeah. Now you do, you do your heel flicks, you get your high knees, you do your side to side steps, you know, you touch your toes, you stretch your groins out, and then it's like, yes, yeah, drill one, drill two, game. Yeah. <laughs> and and for me, it. And this is where I'd like for you to chime in, where, you know, where,
0: where you had to kind of had that uh, moment, if you will, to, to relearn that there was more. I will, I go off to college and I major in health and physical education. And I knew I wanted to teach. I wanted to coach. And I remember taking my first courses in methods of teaching, not methods of teaching physical education. There was a whole separate course, but methods mm-hmm. of teaching. And then there were methods mm-hmm. of teaching physical education. And I remember, um, very vividly, like, whoa, you know, the, a lot of these things, you know, they, they, they tie together. Sometimes physics was a little bit different because it's a physical aspect. But I recall after graduating from college and I kind of got my first real job as a high school coach, applying those methods of teaching to teaching the game of soccer. Mm. Where in your, your, your professional life, that you kind of had that aha moment that, you know, that, that age old lapse and scrimmage isn't right, isn't correct. This is really a, a better
1: way to go.
2: Yeah. I think.
1: Probably two, two things around, around the similar, similar time. When I was doing my, what is, um, I think it's changed now. I think it's called the UEFA C license, but that was basically when I was younger it was called the FA level two. Now, the FA level two was, you know, I, I learned from that. Some people say, Oh, you know, it's not in depth enough, but I, I, I did pick up some stuff from that. And, you know, there was aspects of that. And, you know, you have to give credit to the FA where, this was about 2005. I think I did this. It was, it was quite progressive in the sense of, you know, they would talk about, um, player centered training sessions. They would talk about guided discovery, you know, giving the players a task, set them, set them a task, let them go off, then bring them back in, you know, not, not as, not all the time, but you know, that got me thinking a little bit because when I did the level one and having played, uh, soccer to a reasonable standard, it, it was more basic. Then a couple of years later, I embarked on, and I know you're a fellow, physical education high school in your case, secondary school in my case, teacher. And I remember doing lots and lots of reading where we were doing lesson plan and I used to hate it. You know, you'd go to university and then I'd go home four hours every night stuck to my chair, panicking about the lessons the next day, and there was always a box of you know, teaching styles. And it was very much at the time. And I still think it's going on. You know, there were things like peer evaluation. So, you know, how, how did the, how did the kids know they're, you know, obviously you can stand there and, you know, say, oh, well done, you know, but how do they measure? And so what, you know, we were asked to do was get the people, get the kids to play, you know, in pairs. So set them a task. One, one is the coach, one is the performer. And then you switch it up. So they have to then, give feedback and that that got me started thinking about different styles of coaching and then there was um and then it was individualized individualized learning so I think we've gone from a long time ago where it was one size fits all you know I mean I've, a friend of mine was a very experienced BE teacher in his 80s now was was a coach as well he he said he simplified it he said Rob he said in my teaching experiences any group I've taught And any football, any soccer group I've taught, there's the top third, there's the middle third, and there's the bottom third. Now, that is not going to change. That is the way most groups are made up. Some can go either way. Some can join the top group. Some can slip down. But there was very much within those three groups, you know, in in PE lessons and soccer coaching, it was kind of like, there's your session. Those that can't do it, tough. They're not good enough. And, And the coach doesn't have to do anything to improve them. Then it went down the road. I think of the word we had; it was differentiation, which you know basically means, you know, you have to set appropriate content for the advanced, the intermediates, and the lower. You can't just get off the hook. But I think we've gone so far now, where I look at teachers and coaches, they know every child or player in their group, and they almost set a slightly um nuanced task for every performer in the group and i think that goes on at the top level of the game you know it's like you've got an overall objective but the objective for this player within the overall objective needs to be tweaked a little bit i think it puts a lot of pressure on coaches hence why there are the coaching staff is so big now at professional clubs because you know the manager takes overall responsibility but when you are individualizing trainings to that extent, I think that's why there are so many coaches, um, involved now. And, yeah, that's when it really started to, to think, I started to think about different methods of coaching around, you know, level two with the FA and when I was training as a PE teacher.
0: You know, similar to you, Rob, uh, it, it changed significantly for me, not just, when I got out of college, having taken methods, courses and methods of teaching physical education, when I took my first coaching education course um, and, and, you know, being a, a new young guy out of college and a new young guy in, in in the coaching world, the idea of coaching education was was very, very new to me. And I, I took a course and it was an eye opening experience for me. And mm-hmm. I and I fell in love with the idea that I could I could take a course that is sports specific, i.e. soccer. And have courses available to me over the course of my, my lifetime, of which I still take advantage of. I mean, I, I'm a lifelong learner. Um, mm. That's when things really changed for me. And I went from being, and I, and I have a problem saying this. I, I went from, uh, being an ignorant and is an appropriate mm. word, ing, ignorant, rather loud, maybe a bit brash, uh, guy in the sideline. I played a little professional soccer, blink your eye. You missed my career, but you know, I had played at a good level and, mm. uh, you, you think, you know, everything. Um, and you, you, I got humbled because now I had information. And from this coaching course, it not only taught me methods or content, but it started to teach me about the coach as an individual, the, the coach's presence, the coach's demeanor, talking about leadership skills, being a role model. Now you have to look at yourself more, more closely in the mirror and say, geez, you know, that, that loud guy screaming and hollering at the referee's. Probably not the the best of role models in in what you're doing or what I was doing was very counterproductive. You know, the yelling and screaming just didn't help. That was a turning point for me. And then there was a a gentleman named Joe Maroney. Now, my New England friends will know exactly who Joe Maroney is. Um, Joe Maroney was the former men's coach at University of Connecticut. And Joe was light years ahead of his time in in, in many cases. Um, But Joe used to go to matches in a business suit. And that kind of caught my eye. But what caught my eye more than that was Joe Maroney always had a a really nice leather notebook, which he would open up and he would take notes during games. And he was forever writing notes, writing notes, writing notes, and referring to his notebook. And I later to come come to find out that you know those notes were very important to him in terms of um, putting together a halftime speech. You know, he could he could draw from from his from his notes and. It 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 was the notes were then sometimes used to, to, uh, put together training sessions going forward mm. and he kept his notes. Mm. Well, I went out and got a notebook mm. and for as long as I was a head coach for a thousand plus years, I always had a notebook and I found mm. that that notebook kept me focused uh, on the match, focused on players more in tune with what was going on. It was, it was another turning point for yeah. me, uh, you know, going True. forward, um, so, you know, let's let, let's move forward a little bit here. I had a conversation uh, with a good friend of mine, Marcus DiBernardo, who's the men's coach at uh, Monroe College down in New Rochelle, New York. And he's, he's a great guy, a little bit of an outside-the-box thinker, but wonderful. We started talking about um, the game being the best teacher, mm. and we got into kind of constraints-based approach. Talk to my audience, Rob, a little bit about the game being the best teacher. It's a simple statement, but there's certainly a lot more that goes into that method if you will what what are your thoughts on the game being the best teacher
1: um i think i think similar to you giovanni i think our backgrounds are probably quite similar that we played to a reasonable standard we both got backgrounds in physical education and that these these experiences you know from a from a sociological point of view they they rub off on the coach and you know so i'm you know i'm, I'm coming on to the point you're making but what i'm trying to say is i was and still am Uh, quite autocratic in my in my teaching and my coaching. And I think that's possibly based on a fear of not knowing what to say, of running out of ideas, running out of content. And so you're always trying to be in control. And when you're young, you fear losing control. Whereas when you're older as a coach, you sometimes think, well, I don't want to totally lose control to the point that I'm rolling around on the floor, you know, (laughs) uh, you know, banging my fists in the turf. But I think sometimes letting go of control and letting the game and the players, uh, you know, lead more can be, can be very, very helpful. And, you know, that, that, that phrase you're talking about, let the game uh, be the teacher. Again, that was something that I remember from the FA courses very well. And that again tapped into uh, the guided discovery, which is, you know, I think there comes a point, particularly with young players, and I, I notice it more and more there comes a point where i know they're not listening to me and that could i could be giving what i think is the most inspirational piece of advice but i can see in their eyes through experience they're trying to listen out of politeness but basically what i'm saying is now hit hit a brick wall so i will at that point very much more quickly just let go let go of the verbal side of it and say okay let's go let's go back to it let's go and play and sometimes what is very good for the players is they work out much more they're not protect i think sometimes when we're autocratic we're always protecting the coaches because we set the parameters so clearly we're going to do this we're going to do that we're going to do that and i'm sure some of the players are thinking i don't want to do that i want to do that because i need to find out if i'm able to do this and i think if we go into more a a player led approach then we can players can start to find out for themselves hang on i'm not very good at that and I need to improve that. Or hang on. I found that I'm really good at that, you know, and, and the coach hasn't directed me in a certain way. I found that out for, for myself. And I think I value that more as, as I get older, because you're always looking for things to keep you interested. And like anyone, if you, you get bored of the sound of your own voice, I'm sure your radio listeners are turning off now listening, <laughs> listening to my voice. But, you know, there comes a point where people, are not listening and you're not even listening to yourself you're just talking out of habit you're in the habit of, i'm a teacher i'm a coach i must show and i i worked with a, a guy um PE teacher called uh, terry laird who was a really great PE teacher the kids loved him and he always just said rob he said i'm a facilitator he said i don't get stressed about teaching he said there's no point getting stressed because the outcomes within this context are going to be relatively similar but what I do is I set up activities for them, and I let them make of it what they will. To some degree, they will find out what they're good at, and that really struck that really struck me. And I, I try to see myself more now as you know, the coach facilitates, but the game the game has to facilitate as well.
0: Yes, a- absolutely. One hundred percent spot on on that that last piece of your answer. Um Yeah, we, you know, and I say this all the time when I deliver coaching education courses: it's it's important for coaches to. Not important, but it's almost mandatory that you change your mindset as as the joysticker that I refer to uh you know or or talking players through every situation to um you know setting up games and activities that that have a topic that have an agenda in mind, and creating environments or altering the environments that um will force the players to think I'll give you an example you know kids come to uh you know let's say u tens it could be u tens could be u twelves uh, they come. And we have some maybe fun uh, activation games, and we we get into it. And my first activity, I'll be very arbitrary here. We're u um, tens. I've I've got a I've got a field. I take the goals off the end line. I spin them around, other facing the end lines with some space to play behind. Hmm. And I look at the t- the, the team, and I say, okay, um, we're gonna play four versus four, in, in, in these fields here, It's a setup, go play. Hmm. And invariably, what happens because kids are kids. They go, well, Coach Puccini, the goals are turned backwards. Mm -hmm. And I would say that the three magic words, which I share with people far and wide, the three magic words is figure it out. Mm -hmm. And off they go. So they'll play and these goals that are turned around. And lo and behold, they begin to figure out how to change the way they play relative to the environment that I had set up. They now realize this can't be just a north-south game. Because at some point you're gonna you, you're, you're gonna have to go around the goal that Coach Pacini has turned around. So that affects, from a technical standpoint, they're dribbling. Their dribbling is now has to change. The passing, the receiving. From a tactical standpoint, the where, when's, and why, well, Johnny's going to the right, Rob's going to the left. If I go there, maybe he can pass me the ball. And all these things happen on their own very organically. Over a certain period of time, you you watch, you bring them in, and you say, well, if you have any problems with that, what was what were some of the challenges you faced? And they will tell you, oh, it was really hard. You know, facing the goals are in the opposite direction. I'm like, well, what are some of the ways you think you might be able to sort that out? Well, we may try A, B, or C. Mm, yeah, magic words, go off and try it. And then the coach, again, you keep your mouth shut, no joysticking, yeah. eyes open, your ears open, you watch, and then you bring them in, and you say, boy, what did you try? What, what worked? Mm. And Mm. Again, to your friends, you, to your, your, your mentor, your, your the folks, the, the guy, you know, who's a phys ed teacher, you're just facilitating the environment and you're altering it yeah. in a manner that is challenging to the players. They will learn on yeah. their own. And now the research bears this out. When they're in those environments, they retain more of that information and are more likely to use it going forward. Now, oftentimes we call that constraints based coaching. Again. <laughs> It's, it's letting the game be the teacher. I'm sorry for pontificating
2: there, but, um, what are your thoughts? Yeah. No, I mean, ab- absolutely right. Absolutely right. I mean, one of, one of the things
1: I always like to do is, you know, when you're talking about when you get to, um, scrimmage or we would call, you know, match time, um, you, you let, you let them figure it out. I, I do a, another similar activity where I put, um, the goals on the halfway line. Uh, with the, the nets facing the sidelines. So you can only score by coming round, you know, it, you know, facing the goals there. And at first, the kids are kind of like, oh, I want to play a proper match. <laughs> you know, and you'll say, well, you are playing You are playing a proper match. This is a match. There are two goals and, you know, you're trying to score. So off you go and give it a go. Another one that, that really struck me that I really liked, and I saw it in – a guy used to do this in P lessons all the time with – uh, the year sevens who were basically first year secondary school any invasion game we played so basketball hockey rugby soccer he'd always say to them okay so today's lesson we're just playing a match and obviously the kids were like hooray you know match time and he'd say yeah that's, that's absolutely fine but you can't speak and the kids were like, what do you mean you can't speak and he'd say well you're playing a match if, off you go and at the end of the lesson you're going to tell me what it was like what you did, why, you know, and how it was when you couldn't speak. And I liked, you know, I liked that kind of um, approach to it, which is, you know, think how much just those two little facilitation processes, think how much thinking the kids are, the players are actually having to do. You know, I've played those games and it really does twist your thinking a little bit. And, you know, you could, a coach could stand there for half an hour explaining how important it is for us to play laterally how it's um, important for us to think outside the box and all the players are going to be standing there thinking, oh, that sounds interesting, but when they go home, they're not going to remember a word, a word you've said about it. And so I think it really is, um it is really a great learning tool for, for players or for coaches rather, and a learning aid for players. If we can, you know, get into that mentality of, as you say, you know, thinking outside the box and, I don't care how great any coach thinks they are. No one, no coach, can control everything. The harder you try, you're just going to shorten your career. I think because you're going to burn out. You're going to get so tired, and every little thing that goes wrong, you're going to take responsibility for. And in any organization, you can't, you can't have one person who just feels totally responsible when when things go wrong. Because I mean, you know, in your coaching, the same as mine. I see things going wrong. All the time, all the time. But I've learned to accept that that's part of it. That is just, it's unavoidable. That's, that's part, part of it. You've got to go into, into the fog. The players have got to walk around in the fog for a while. You can't just keep, you know, I'm over here, come out, come out, let me save you because, you know, then, then they're not going to develop like.
0: Yeah, you know what? You and I talk about our constraints-based coaching, and um, again, I can't take credit here from my from my friend. Um, He he, and this is his quote, but he talks about taking away absolute freedoms. And whenever you put a restriction or a constraint, you're you're taking away absolute freedom. So he talks about taking away absolute freedoms, so the players can find and create new freedoms slash solutions, which Mm -hmm. I thought was very profound. So much so profound that I wrote it down. Uh, but it, it's so very, very true that when you mm. put those constraints on an activity, you know, it, it does challenge the players you know, technically, tactically. Uh, it certainly, it, it's a test of their resiliency, their patience mm. to want to try things and explore to find new, new solutions and new freedoms. Um, and again, you know, I'm going to speak to my studio audience here. This, this is what we do now, particularly at the grassroots level. Um, folks have to remember that. Particularly with skill, I'll digress for a half a second here. You know, with with uh, skill is is technique that is practiced and, and manifests itself in context. What is that context? In play. Um, I had a bit of a go with, with someone about the use of cones and having players dribble through cones. And you can set up mm-hmm. cones in a variety of different ways for them to dribble through. Mm-hmm. And I immediately dismiss mm-hmm. it. I, I just no, it has very little, if any, value at all. And they looked at mm. me rather incredulously. They were, they were polite, rather incredulously. I'm like, "Those cones aren't moving. Those, those cones <laughs> exactly. aren't moving. Those yep. Cones don't don't you know aren't sticking a foot out to toe poke the ball away no. from the kid and dribbling it through. It's a it's a yep. not a realistic soccer environment or ecosystem, whatever fancy word you want to use. Yeah, now put right. players out there. Mm. You know, have them dribble against players in any kind of activity you want to set up and whatever constraints you want to put in. Now you're going to do, do a, so much more for the young player uh, in that context because they're playing in a in, in real world environment. And the second point I try to make, I go, you know, soccer, like any team sport, every time someone moves, even just a little bit, everything changes. Yeah. And when something changes, every player has to then mentally adjust and, mm. and in some cases physically adjust. Mm. playing against cones or drilling against cones takes away that element Mm. only by having human beings in an activity with it whether any kind of constraints you want is the only environment where players can get real-time information can provide real-time feedback because at the end of the day on saturday when the when the real whistle blows it's a real football match it's a real soccer match yeah Um, absolutely so I'm not saying throw your cones away. Cones have their place, but um, it's it's uh, it's not the most effective
1: way, certainly in, in terms of
0: uh, you know d- uh,
1: teaching technique or training technique. But just very briefly, John, I know, we, sure. I know we need to move on. Just on that point, you're so right. I mean, when I when I coach players, I always say to them, you know, if you're talking about dribbling and one v ones, I always say, okay. So when we go into a match, I I will be so impressed if you can win. A 1v1. I'm not talking about going past two, three, four players because I always say to them, you know, you can watch, um, YouTube videos where the best players are their highlights packages where they go past three or four players. And I say that is not the reality of their, of their day to day. You know, even, even the best players. I always say if you can, if you can win a 1v1, that is something to be proud of because it is so hard to do. I was never good at 1v1s. I was too tall. I just didn't have that mentality. But I always say to players, you know, if you can, even in training, beat one player, you have done so well. Because there are so many factors involved. You know, you can't control what the defender's doing. And as you say, one movement affects the other. If it's a winger against the fullback, the fullback moves, before you know it, it's a 1v2 because the centre half has come across to cover. And then you've got all kinds of decision-making processes. Do I take him on on the left? Do I go on the right? And so, you know, that, that thing about cones, you're so right. Yes, can it give you some confidence in your technique? But, you know, you can arrange them in the, uh, the most beautiful formations. But it gives players a feeling that I've just gone past 20 players there. And it's like, well, you know, you'll do well to go past one player in a match. So you've got to keep it realistic.
0: Yeah, you know, to your point about one versus one, uh, I, I, I I agree with you 100%. Um, we, we want our players, particularly in the modern game, we want our players to have the ability to attack. And when you're, you're one v one, you have the ball, even if it's in your defensive third, you're, you're one v one, you're still, you're still attack mode. Um, Mm. and, and and I'll add this little caveat and and I'm going to reach out to my listening audience, particularly the parents out there. Okay. Parents, are you listening? Um, with little Johnny or Janie. Tries to take on a defender 1v1 and loses the ball, the last thing they need to hear is, oh, what did you do that for? You have to applaud them for yeah. having the courage to yeah. want to take that person on yeah, 1v1. Yeah, yeah. And you tell them, oh, you'll yeah. get him, you'll get him the next time, you'll get her the next time. Mm. That will encourage mm. your son or daughter, that'll encourage players to want to take people on one versus one.
1: Absolutely. Scary. 1v1s are scary because you expose yourself. You know, that's why I used to pass all the time because I didn't want to expose myself. Which made you a (laughs) great playmaker, right? Of course. Yeah. (laughs) Well, listen, I was a goalkeeper.
0: Everything was a 1v1, you know, at the end of the day. That's true. Yeah. You know, Um so going back a little bit, um, in the notes that I take here, I'm going to digress just for a half a second here. But there's some important things that we in our conversation that came up here. You know, we talked about you know the, the importance of, of of playing the game here in the United States. Um, U.S. Soccer had a, a methodology called play, practice, play, and mm-hmm. um, it it was a, a terrific mindset, a terrific methodology whereby, you know, when 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 kids came to the training environment, they would start by playing the game of soccer. Sometimes it could be very organic. Um we used to call that deliberate play, and it could be small sided, and then you get into the practice. Now the practice could be one activity, could be two activities, but when you get into that practice, that practice uh, segment, again, you try to make it as games driven as possible, mm-hmm. and then you would play again, and that would be more contextual, m- meaning okay, today was well, it was about one versus once. Our our, mm-hmm. our premise today was trying to beat a defender, and so your activity obviously pre- uh, reflective of that, and then when the last part of play contextual. Are your players now trying to take on defenders 1v1 based upon what you did, you know, in the, in the training session? But from beginning to end, everything was, is, is playing. They're playing. Mm. Uh-huh. And again, I'm going to beat this dead horse because I really want coaches to really understand this. The driving force behind the learning process is the Socratic method, is guided learning, is not joysticking, is not mm. joysticking. No. As right, much no. as as much as you think you're helping them, and, and you know this as well I do, Rob, folks, their hearts are in the right place. Mm. They so want Johnny or Janie to really do well, so they'll tell them because they want them to do well. When in fact, despite the good heart that they're, they're doing a bit of a disservice to Johnny or Janie, they need mm. to shut their mouths and create an environments, you know, that they can be successful. And then they'll, they'll know the kids will know that they've done well when you give them a high five. Mm. Rob, that was awesome. That was a great one v one. Hey, show the rest of the team that that move you just uh, you just did to beat Giovanni.
2: Mm. And all of a sudden, yes, you,
0: you've created this environment where kids are doing things on their own, and they've been successful, and they've been acknowledged, and their their self esteem goes up. They want to do it again. And you're just we'll go back to your your friend there. You're the facilitator. You mm. just facilitated this this whole thing. And I'll yeah, tell you I what, Rob, it. it's 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 a joy. It's a joy when you really watch
1: it, and 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 it works so nicely. Yeah, I think I think also, Giovanni, like as coaches, you know, and as people, we all have to drop drop our ego sometimes because, you know, sometimes when you adopt that player led um uh, approach to a session, you know, sometimes I'll come home and think, what did I actually do tonight? And you know, you because you weren't waving your arms and telling him to go here and her to go there. You should have done this. You should have done. That, it's habitual thinking, which is like. Okay. I'm the coach, so I must know all the answers and know what to do. But sometimes, as you say, the most joyful sessions are where you set up a nice activity where it progresses well. The kids play it and you go home. It's very hard because you're there thinking, Oh, I didn't do much today. And it's like, do you always need? How much do you always need to do? And, you know, sometimes the coach ego, you know, the the, the, the typical, you know, youth coach on a Sunday morning on the side of the pitch. Saying a million things, they are going into a dozen, and it's for the crowd. It's, for, you know, it's because if they're one nil down and the coach is standing there not saying anything, everyone's going to go home and oh, coach Rob didn't say anything today. He doesn't know what he's doing. But you know, I could be standing there saying absolutely anything. It doesn't mean I know what I'm doing. It's just ego. It's ego driven. I want to show that I'm talking to players through this, and as you say, until you know, I think there's a five percent in players that if you are so ego driven. Will never, will never come out of the players because you'll always think I'm protecting them or I'm exposing them. And you're not. You cannot get that last 5% unless the player, the players do it themselves. I don't think, you know, and as I say, I think that's so hard at the top level of the game. When you look how, you know, the top Premier League teams, the little percentage points they're, they're going for, sometimes the Mavericks or sometimes the the people who can think outside the box, are the serial winners. You know, I consider Klopp as a bit of a maverick, a bit. You know, I'm not saying he just lets players get on with it, but there's something about the way he goes about things that I think on a, on a human level as well, the players feel emboldened by it, which is kind of like, I can relate to this guy because he might let me drown for a bit because drowning is part. Of playing soccer, if you don't learn that you you can drown, you know you're never going to learn how to survive it. And you know, again, I think also it's you know a, a, a real coaching great that we don't talk about enough was was Brian Clough, what he did at Forest and Derby, and I think he he revealed so many truths to the players, but also human human truths. You know, there was amazing stories that some days he'd cancel training, and I'm not saying we do this with our under fives. He'd cancel training and he'd take them for a walk down the River Trent. And he'd say, because you guys need to hear the birds in the trees today. And at first, the players must be thinking, what on earth is this guy doing? But there's a truth in there. Sometimes players are tired. Sometimes players need to switch off. Sometimes players need to be told, just go and, you know, do whatever you want. He used to play games of badminton sometimes. with it. Now, can you imagine that now? Turning up on the training ground <laughs> and you've got the manager playing again. You'd think, oh, sack him immediately. But with small clubs, you won league titles, two European cups of forest, and I think it's about you know as I say, being brave enough to let go a little bit sometimes see see what else happens
0: you know you bring up a great point there rob uh what what he did and what we are talking about is um remember you're dealing with human beings They're absolutely people and sometimes yeah. people just need to be take be taken out of that you know their their environment and 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 go go to the park and, you know, uh listen to birds. Uh, yeah, it's um whatever it takes. I mean, when, when I was yeah. a head coach in college, you know, depending on the schedule and that type of thing, I would say to the boys the day before, Mike, gentlemen, no soccer shoes tomorrow, no soccer, bring your baseball gloves. We're playing yep. softball tomorrow.
2: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they'd be like, oh.
0: We play softball and we would have a boatload of fun, an absolute boatload of fun. Um, mm. not, you know not so much all the things that that are beneficial relative to team building and buying all those types I of think. things but just from a human standpoint they got a little bit of a, a little bit of a respite from the daily grind that is well in my case it was a collegiate soccer and they did something fun and i would get up there and i would pitch and i you know swing a bat and sometimes i hit sometimes i didn't which would made for a lot of laughter when coach Pacini struck out um <laughs> but that was but it was great it, it was great in that regard um mm-hmm. and there's no reason why Heck, I don't care if you're coaching a group of six-year-olds, middle school, high school, college. You can still do that type of thing and take them off and do something as a group, as a group of people doing of something together, doing something together. Yeah, of course. Um, one of the things I want to touch upon is you know you you talked about you know looking back at a training session that you that you 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 um, might have just overseen or even a match, and reflection that has everything mm-hmm. to do with reflection. Um, You know, again, when I deliver coaching education courses, the the idea and the discussions around reflection are very, very important. Uh, You know, you can reflect the previous training session. You can reflect the previous match, reflect a a month ago, six months ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, depending on how old you are. Um, uh, For me, I remember when I was driving home from from campus, you know, it was that 25 or 30 minute drive. That was my reflection time. And I would reflect back on the training session or on a game day you know I, you know everything was wrapped up and I get in the car to go home I would reflect uh and mm-hmm. I used to have a little tape recorder because it's, you know you don't want to take notes while you're driving but I would talk into the tape recorder I'm like ah you, this could have been done better oh you should have tried that oh at that moment when you sub so and so for so and so reflection is so so very important I, and again I don't care if you're you're a town team coach of U6s you're still a teacher of the game and it's still important that you look back to ensure that you know you You've done right by the players.
1: Does, yeah, does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely it does. Sure.
0: And then the second point I want to you know we, we talked about parents and coaches, um, and I scribbled on the word here in my notes anxiety. Mm. You know, uh, you know, sports athletics by its very nature is it can can elicit anxiety. Sometimes it's good anxiety, mm. but you know, I don't care if you're six or high school, whatever. When it's game day, you know, there's a certain level of excitement slash anxiety that goes along with it. And it is only exacerbated in the worst possible way when parents are screaming at their kid to do this or to do that. And the coach is trying to counter that by yelling his or her directions. And then the, the player is lost between the two mm. and they're afraid. And this is uh, all mm. borne out by research they're, they're fearful to try things. We talked about, you know, the idea of one versus one. They're fearful because they're afraid of failing,
2: mm. afraid
0: of failing. Uh, so our our coaches and our parents have to understand that anxiety by its very nature is going to be associated with game day in particular, and we can help anxiety make it something positive by saying positive things or, well, not saying anything at all. Um, Mm.
2: Let me ask you, let me ask you
0: along these same lines, you know, it's been a long time since I've been in in Europe and in in the football fashion. What are the, what are the sidelines like for youth football matches in England? Are you you experiencing a lot of the same things? Experiencing here in the United States relative to, to parent behavior or uh, th- that type of thing
1: Uh yeah we are i think I think that's um I think that's common I think that's a sadly a, a common theme across youth soccer around the world I mean you know various initiatives have been have been tried at different levels of youth soccer here from from blanket banning parents you know they can they can drop the kids off, but you know they have to stay in the car to watch the game they're not allowed around the pitch uh, I've worked with uh, some professional clubs at their training sessions development centers parents are not allowed inside the training venue and some sometimes you might think is that a bit harsh but I actually prefer that I preferred it because you know I, I look at it this way you know sport is so visible in society but you know I've had comments from parents sometimes and you know, probably I shouldn't have taken exception sometimes, but you know, I liken it to this. You know, someone will come up to me and sort of, I heard, I heard a comment once about I was the head coach. At, um, one of Chelsea's development centers, at a venue in, in London. And I, I heard a parent saying, um, well, that's cause Rob doesn't know what he's doing. Um, and you know, that really hurt. It really, it really hurt. I felt, I felt really small for the rest of the session. Um, but I did, you know, eventually have a conversation with the guy, and I just kind—I of, just kind of reminded him. I said, "Look, at the end of the day, I'm doing my job here, and you are watching me do my job." Now, I'm pretty sure whatever your job is on Monday morning, whether it be in an office, whether it be fixing a car, you're not going to have someone sat on your desk saying, "You could have done that. You could have done that. You could have—you could have tried this. You could have... And so, I just—I just wanted to—to to make the point that. You know, coaches can get anxious. And if the coaches are anxious, it's going to feed to the players, you know, and it becomes this, this kind of it can become very toxic. And so I prefer the training environment, especially for young kids where the parents are not there. I've seen that. I think that that got dropped because players, parents were kind of like, well, I want to see my kids play. And I think some ground was given, but now you, you still see the same thing. And I always, if there's a kid I know and he knows that I'm watching him, I step Right back. I might I might waver him or her before the game, but I can see the moment they start looking over at me, I worry for them because you know you know they're looking. They should be looking at the game, and I'm sure you see the same. They keep looking at me, and everything they do. They take a good first touch. They run off and they look. at me. And I think you know it's it is so stressful for kids having having people watch them and and judge them. And you know as I say. It, and also when you listen, when you step back and you listen to the comments, most of it is just noise. It's just, it's just noise, you know, well done, you know, you no know, praise is great, but you know, what does that actually mean? Well done. Or, oh, good boy, good lad. You know, it's, what does, when you hear all these voices and then the groans of disappointment when someone puts the ball over and you can't help it. We're humans, you know, if your son or daughter misses, you're going to groan. But when there's 20 people groaning, to a six-year-old, that's like Wembley Stadium, you know and you know, I, I used to hear all the time kids bursting into tears and you know, kids do burst into tears when they lose but I think so much of it, they're kind of put on this stage and it's too much, it's too much for them you know, I I don't really like much parental involvement, you know, and they could say yeah, but I, I want to see how my child played because I want to give them feedback, it's like you're not a coach, you're them you love them more than we are going to, because they're your flesh and blood. But ultimately, that's not your job to do that. You can have your opinions, but I'm not going to come and tell you how to fix cars. I'm not going to come and tell you how to, you know, serve at a table, whatever it might be. And so it's horrible to see, but it's absolutely an issue here as well as in the States. You know, one of the,
0: uh much like you, one of the responses that I have when you I uh, get that that type of uh, feedback, if I hear it, I would say to Mr. and Mrs. fill in the blank um, on, uh, would, would you go into your child's, um, oh, I don't know, math class and uh, tell the math teacher uh, how to teach math? And would you be oh. yelling to your son or daughter? No, uh, that's the wrong mathematical answer. Oh, no, no. Two plus seven is not that. W- would you be doing that in a classroom? And they look right. at you like you're crazy. I'm like, well, no, I would never do that. Yeah. then don't do it on the soccer field because <laughs> yeah. you're doing the exact same thing. You're yelling at the teacher yeah. in a classroom of sorts, being the training environment, even on game yeah, day, I guess, to a certain degree. And the students are, are the players. And you would mm. never do that in an academic environment. Nope. Then don't do it in an athletic environment. You wait till the Absolutely. kids come out of math class. Hey, what's, how how was school today? After yeah. the fact. You Tell know. me. yeah, How was it? Yeah. You know, it. it you know. I say it all the time parents hearts i think typically are in the right place how they manifest that love and affection has to be has to be fine-tuned a little bit has to be fine-tuned because at, yeah, yeah. nice yeah, at the end of the day that's a nice way it. yeah at the end of the day the victims and i hate to use that word victims, but they're, they're the children they are they are the the children so, right. oh rob ellis but i could talk to you for hours on end um yeah me too we're gonna do this Not me uh, i could talk to you for hours on it there you go there you go uh, <laughs> at some point we'll do this for real with, with a beer and you know in in, in, uh, in our midst um we will sh- shameless plug your book
1: yeah name the book and where can people get it shameless plug time shameless plug time okay so uh the soccer coach's toolkit is the name of the book, More Than 250 Activities to, God, I haven't read the cover for a while, I think Inspire and, and Challenge Players. Um And it is available uh, online on, at all good bookstores. So there's the old favorites, there's Amazon. In the UK, we have our main bookshop is Waterstones. In the States, I think it's Barnes & Noble. But, you know, if you type into good old Google Soccer Coaches Toolkit, You can shop around and find the current cheapest version for that. I probably shouldn't say that. I should probably be stitching up all the readers and saying, go for the most expensive one, but you can. It was interesting when I was in the States and I was obviously searching my book because that's what people do in their spare time. You know, it was many, many small independent book uh, stores where it's available and public libraries, school libraries, college libraries. Hopefully you'll find copies in there, but it would be great if anyone um is of a coaching inclination and would like a lifetime coaching experiences i'm i'm pretty sure you will enjoy the book and get a lot of use out out of it so please buy one i'll take it a step further i know for a fact
0: people enjoy it i have a copy bought it through amazon uh through the magic of amazon the very next day there it was plopped in my doorstep and uh and and i i have gone through it, and uh I talked to folks about it, so not because rob is my friend um it, it's a terrific book, so definitely definitely uh pick it up thank rob you Rob Ellis my good friend uh thank you for once again being on the g p soccer podcast we're gonna do this again uh, before season eight is over um this is Giovanni Pacini. this is the g p soccer podcast you all know that we're gonna break for a commercial or two, and then on the other side, you're gonna hear my good friend Rob Ellis again as he uh as he sends us and in, in, uh, delivers the EPL in European Soccer Report. Giovanni Puccini, GP Soccer Podcast. Don't you go anywhere. I'll catch you on the other side. Can't get enough soccer here in the GP Soccer Podcast? Would you like to hear a different twist on the game and still enjoy some terrific interviews, news, and analysis? Well, you can find Giovanni Puccini on his new show, Direct Kick, on WMEX AM 1510 every Tuesday night from 6 to 7 p.m. Catch the show live on your radio or streaming on WMEXBoston.com. So tune in to Direct Kick with host Giovanni Piccini on WMEX AM 1510, Tuesdays from 6 to 7 p.m. Welcome to the GP Soccer Podcast English and European Football Roundup with your host Rob Ellis.
1: Hi everyone and greetings from London. This is Rob Ellis with the 8th edition of my European Soccer Roundup. After two weeks of sun and rest in Atlanta, I'm back to the cold and the damp of London. So it's a good job there are plenty of big matches across Europe to help me lift my spirits. With May fast approaching, we are reaching the business end of the domestic and European competitions. So with this in mind, I'm going to take this opportunity to focus on the European Champions League semi-finals. I'm going to recap on how the four semi-finalists of Inter Milan, AC Milan, Manchester City and Real Madrid have progressed to this stage since the knockouts. I'm going to look at each team's strengths and weaknesses and explore how both semi-finals could play out. For those of you who are unaware, the draw has paired up the favourites and the second favourites for the competition as Manchester City will take on Real Madrid in one semi-final and local rivals Inter Milan and AC Milan will face off in the other semi-final in what is sure to be a spicy encounter. The semi-finals will be contested over two legs, and due to the abolition of the away goals count double rule in 2021, should either game finish level on aggregate, extra time and then penalties will decide the winners. So let's have a look at how all four teams have progressed through the knockout stages, starting with the bookmakers' favourites, Manchester City. Guardiola's men have made light work of German opposition in both knockout rounds, largely thanks to two blistering home performances. In the round of 16, City did have something to think about after drawing the first leg 1-1 away against RB Leipzig. Despite taking the lead and dominating possession, City endured some shaky moments as Leipzig toiled to take a lead to Manchester to protect in the second leg. However, the citizens needn't have feared as they demolished the Germans 7-0 in a breathtaking performance that saw Erling Haaland become the youngest player to score five goals in a Champions League match. City then prevailed 4-1 on aggregate against the German giants Bayern Munich in the quarterfinals. Once again, the damage was done at the Etihad Stadium with a 3-0 win, including a sensational left-footed strike from Spanish midfielder Rodri. The second leg was a relatively close game that saw Bayern outdo City in terms of possession, shots on target and corners. However, the overall feeling was that the Germans were largely kept at arm's length as they disappointingly exited the competition. City's opponents in the semi-finals, Real Madrid, played out a rollercoaster last 16 match against Liverpool before comfortably dispatching a struggling Chelsea in the quarter-finals. Madrid came from 2-0 down to stun Anfield as they robbed back to the Bernabeu with a 5-2 first-leg win. Doubles for Vinicius Junior and the old gunslinger Karim Benzema allowed Los Blancos to toy with the Reds in the second leg, which they did expertly to complete a 1-0 win and a 6-2 aggregate win. Against Frank Lampard's goal-shy Chelsea in the quarter-finals, Madrid ran out 4-0 winners with two comfortable 2-0 wins. Thanks to Chelsea's struggles in front of goal, Madrid were happy to allow Chelsea to punch themselves out before punishing them on the counter-attack. The European media likened Real Madrid's performance to that of a tank, in that you can throw at them everything you've got, but eventually they're going to flatten you. In the blue half of Milan, Inter squeezed past Porto of Portugal 1-0 on aggregate in the last 16. Either team could have progressed, but the fine margins and big moments certainly went Inter's way. At the San Siro in the first leg, Romelu Lukaku's late goal ultimately decided the tie, and thanks to heroics in both legs from their Cameroonian goalkeeper, Andre Onana, Inter held on to book a fixture with Portuguese champions-elect Benfica in the last eight. Italian international midfielder Nicola Barella scored a goal in both legs as Inter secured a deserved 5-3 aggregate win despite some late resistance from Benfica that saw them salvage a 3-3 draw in the second leg of the San Siro. Thanks to Inter's 2-0 first leg win, they always looked likely to prevail and they extended their lead further in Italy before a combination of complacency and their nerves threatened to undo their good work late on. Fellow San Siro tenants AC Milan celebrated their first Champions League semi-final appearance since 2007, thanks to narrow victories over Tottenham in the last 16 and runaway Serie A leaders Napoli in the quarterfinals. After an uninspiring 1-0 aggregate win over Spurs in the last 16, few would have backed Milan to reach the last four of Europe's elite club competition. Brahim Diaz sent Spurs packing as his early first-leg goal ultimately settled the tie. Ismail Benassia's first-half strike secured a 1-0 first-leg lead for the Rossoneri in the first leg of their quarter-final match against Napoli. The second leg was a tale of missed penalties, with Olivier Giroud missing for Milan, before going on to score later on in the game and Kravac missing for Napoli. This miss was the deciding factor as Victor Osmohen's late goal for Napoli almost forced extra time. Most experts predict that the winner of the competition will be the team that comes out on top from the Man City-Real Madrid tie. On paper, City's starting 11 and bench appears to be the stronger of the two. They are on rampant form domestically and a treble of the FA Cup, the English Premier League and the Champions League trophies are all within grasp. City will face Madrid with inverted wingers Jack Grealish and Riyad Mahrez. Both are on top form and Madrid's fullbacks of Carvajal and Camavinga can expect two difficult matches against this pair. Madrid's preferred Champions League centre-back pairing of Militao and Alaba may have to double up on Erling Haaland such as his goal-scoring threat. Madrid holding midfielder Toni Kroos will play a key role in picking up the pieces off of the centre-back's duels with Haaland if Madrid are to successfully counter on Man City. City generally play a 3-2-4-1 formation in Europe, which means that Madrid will have four units to play through on the counter, and so they must try to counter as quickly as possible to unsettle City. Madrid's front three are Rodrigo, Vinicius Junior and Benzema may fancy their chances against City's back line of Ake, Akanji and Laporte, particularly if the back three get their angles of support wrong. From a psychological perspective, City have the bigger demons to conquer. Real Madrid are the undisputed kings of European soccer with 14 European Cups and Champions League titles under their belt. Manchester City, on the other hand, are yet to win the competition for all the talent at their disposal in recent years. If Guardiola can deal with his own nerves and enable his players to play with freedom, City have everything else they need to win the tie. Real Madrid will be psychologically ready as they always are when it really matters. Can they psych out Man City before a ball is even kicked? AC Milan have won seven European Cups and Inter have won three. So the fact that they are both considered underdogs to lift the trophy may dismay both Milanese giants. However, neither side has been convincing during the domestic season. Milan lie 5th in Serie A and Inter a 6th. Both teams are currently miles behind runaway leaders Napoli. In European competitions, AC Milan play with a 4-2-3-1 formation, whereas Inter go for a 3-5-2. Milan's number 9, Olivier Giroud, will have to work very hard to occupy Inter's three center-backs, Darmian, Acerbe and Bastone, and try to play in his supporting wide men of Brahim Diaz and Rafael Leal if Milan to attack Inter with purpose. At the other end of the pitch, Inter possess three very dangerous forwards in Martinez, Dzeko and Lukaku. Whichever two of these three is selected will give Milan centre-backs of Chiar and Tomore sleepless nights and two very tough inspections on the pitch. Inter may also look to exploit the explosive power of wide-right player Denzil Dumfries of Holland, whose athleticism will surely trouble Milan's slightly ponderous left-back of Teo Hernandez. Well, for what it's worth, I'm tipping Madrid and Inter to progress to the finals, with Madrid going on to win their 15th European Cup. The remainder of the competition looks mouth-watering, and I'm sure that, like me, you can't wait for the semifinals to kick off. Well, time flies, and that's my time up. Until next time, take care and best wishes from London. This is Rob Ellis signing out.
0: Well, many thanks to Rob Ellis uh, for his English Premier League and European report, and thanks to Rob Ellis again for taking some time to, uh, to talk about the different ways to teach the game of soccer. I hope you enjoyed that conversation and continue to enjoy... Uh, his EPL and European reports. Very much appreciated. So, ladies and gentlemen, that's our show for today. If you like what you heard, please tell everyone. You can follow the GP Soccer Podcast on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, Twitter, Linktree, and on my website, gpsoccerpodcast.com. And don't forget to tune into Direct Kick every Tuesday night from 6 to 7 p.m. on WMEX, AM 1510, and streaming on wmexboston.com. This is your host, Giovanni Pacini and I will catch you later.